Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we are going to get an update on Canadian politics, which are usually kind of depressing, but there's a lot of things to talk about. And to do so, I'm connecting once again with my friend Andrew Lawton of The Andrew Lawton Show and author of the best-selling book, The Freedom Convoy, which I know many of you read. We had him on the show to discuss it. We're going to talk about the state of the Conservative Party, the state of the country in general, where we're at with the whole freedom movement, a couple of months out from the publication of his book and months out, of course, from the Freedom Convoy itself. That's all coming up in this next conversation. All right, Andrew, just to start off here, the last time we talked to you was a couple of months ago. We were talking about your book, The Freedom Convoy. So maybe just update the listeners on where that went, because I believe you were on one bestseller list last time we talked and you ended up on a few more within a week after we talked. Yeah, I went through like the Jonathan Van Maren effect. After that interview, I went up to like number one on the Globe and Mail bestseller list and number one on the Toronto Star bestseller list. Then I just camped there for a little while and stretched my legs and then eventually was dethroned by a pop star's tell-all memoir. But you know what? I enjoyed being up there and I, I thank you very much for the boost to help me get up there. Yeah, I, I, I doubt that the folks of the Globe and Mail have ever heard of this podcast. Uh, the customers, the customers who buy the book, who don't even necessarily read the globe and mail were the ones that got it up there so don't sell yourself short fair enough fair enough what's interesting is that when i had talked to you it hadn't been reviewed much yet and i've been waiting for the reaction of our chattering classes to that sort of memoir slash reportage that you did on the freedom convoy and Justin Ling, I saw, did something, and he was very fair-minded about it. And most of his reporting, I found, was you know concentrated on doing deep dives into the various nefarious digital caverns that some convoyers inhabited. But I, I felt like in his discussion with you, he could have been a lot more insufferable than he was, and 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 the conversation seemed to be both amicable and fair. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think in in a lot of regards, Justin and I are just as passionate about the story, but from very different perspectives and and very different worldviews. And and we were able to agree on sort of a core set of facts about this thing. I think where we disagree is that he focuses a lot more on what I view and I contend in the book are, are more anomalies to the convoy. And that involves elevating some of the instances that in some respects are very uncomfortable and do raise questions. But I also, I mean, I'm very appreciative that he took the opportunity to speak. And and it was interesting because a day or two days after he published his interview with me, there was a talk radio host in Ottawa, a mainstream media host, who decided to do a segment about my book and interviewed Justin Ling about his interview with me about my book and would not interview me. And I even reached out and I said, Hey, I'll send you a copy. I'd love to chat. And and she never responded. And to his credit, Justin like called her on that in the interview and said, you know, these are really questions you should be asking the author. What gives? But still, I I have not done any mainstream media interviews on the book. Yeah. I was going to ask why you thought that was because the national post published, I think what two pretty extensive excerpts. And so then I saw Justin a links thing. And then I saw you know, the book mentioned by people like the globe and mail who are forced to, and I think the star also, but they didn't assign any reviewer to the number one bestseller, not just in Canada, but on Amazon, but especially in Canada about a very Canadian thing by a journalist who was there. And it's not like, you know, you're, you're, you're part of the untouchable camp, right? There's journalists that, that, you know, the media has formally declared persona non grata. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have placed you in that camp at least. Why do you think it is that they're ignoring a book published by a reputable publisher 
used to be editor-in-chief of McLean's. Like, I, it actually did surprise me a bit that none of them would review it. I thought a few of them would at least take the chance to crap on it. Yeah, it was interesting because I would have even welcomed like the nasty Heather Malick hatchet job in the Toronto Star or some absolute bludgeoning on CBC radio. I would have taken critical. I would have taken skeptical. I didn't want anyone to just look at this uncritically. I wanted people to engage with it. And it was interesting how many people were, even though this book was, again, for several weeks, the number one selling book in Canada, how many media outlets just didn't want to touch it. And I, I'm grateful the National Post did so far as i'm aware they're the only one who did engage in it in a serious way by running excerpts no one has reviewed it from any newspaper in canada that i'm aware of and i think that's a quite shame not just for me personally but because it, it's an example of i think one of the very themes of the book which is just this disconnect between this large segment of the population and this industry that's supposed to report on this population well, I feel personally deprived of Heather Malick's likely orgiastic defense of the Emergency Measures Act, which would have obviously been a key part of her review. It's really too bad that one didn't get published. Where are you right now with it? One of the things that I, I find interesting about your reporting, and I remember, you know, when I was when I was up in Ottawa and I talked to a bunch of, of the various convoy people, some of whom you you interviewed in your later on, that People have a short political memory that this is going to happen, that, you know, the cops are going to clear things out and that a bunch of these people are going to end up getting hounded by the authorities to, who are determined to make them pay for this protest while everybody else moves on with their life. Right. Pandemic over. I don't have to wear a mask in, in the gas station anymore. We're all good to go. But you've been following all the court cases bit by bit. So where would you say we're at? So, you know, the convoy was in February. We're now in September. Where would you say the aftermath, the fallout of the convoy is since both the convoy and the publication of your book? Just structurally, there are a bunch of things on the calendar. We've got the Parliamentary Oversight Committee into the Emergencies Act coming up. We've got the public commission hearing starting up in the next couple of weeks. And then we've got a bunch of criminal cases for people like Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, not to mention legal challenges against the Emergencies Act by the, the JCCF, the CCF, the CCLA, and, and so on. So there are a lot of things that are definitely keeping this story alive. From my perspective, it, it's interesting to look at where we are right now in the country on the measures that triggered the or triggered the convoy. You've got the federal mandates dropped as of October 1st or September 30th, I think 1159 p.m. on the 30th. And in so many respects, this was the last big holdout for mandates in Canada, notwithstanding some stuff in healthcare or universities in, at, at Western in London and a couple of others. But I think all of this is to say that no one feels like it's really over, certainly not anyone who was in that convoy community, because they've all latched on, I think justifiably so, to the government's proclamations that, well, you know, all it takes is a bad a week of cases, and we're right back into where we were previously. So I think a lot of people are, are still feeling like they can't quite be comfortable, that that battle for freedom hasn't quite been won Yeah, I was going to ask you a couple of questions on this because this will lead directly into, into a key subject I want to cover with you, which is the new conservative leader. But, but first and foremost, what have we found out about how the government made their decisions? Because we're, again, now in the fall, you know, the pandemic is over or not, depending on, on who you talk to. Some of them cling to it quite fiercely because they fear they shall miss it. So if it's gone, but we should be at the point now where all of these different premiers 
members who made all these different decisions, some of them who have paid very dearly for it, like Jason Kenney, some who have not at all and appear to have been rewarded for it, like Doug Ford, all said that they made decisions with information they had at the time, you know, under massive pressure from competing groups and competing pieces of advice. But we should be now well into the sober second thought period, should we not, where we find out what did the lockdowns do? What did shutting down schools do? Did the lockdowns reduce cases? Did we prevent a huge surge? Or, in fact, did we ensure that a lot of people, you know, with with various health problems didn't get the treatment they need? Are we anywhere closer to finding out, A, what the effect of the so-called solution was, and B, what metrics the government used to make their decisions so that in the future we can attach government responses to key benchmarks? To the first question, I I don't think we're very close at all. I I mean, you look at just a tale of two states, for example, New York, which went very whole hog into lockdowns and restrictions versus Florida, which did the exact opposite and sort of became the model. It was like the libertarian model for COVID. Both of them had statistical death rates that were very, very similar to one another. And that's particularly exceptional when you consider the older population in Florida, which should have made it significantly higher than elsewhere. So I I think that's one example here. And and if you look at it on a global scale, Sweden was the libertarian test case as far as restrictions go, because they really didn't lock down. And even though they eventually did put some restrictions in place, they still didn't go the direction that places like Canada and the UK and, and Australia went. And at the end of it, weathered COVID in a very similar way on some metrics, slightly better way when it comes to cases and deaths as places that did lock down. So I I think that there is a huge discussion that needs to be had about whether all of these measures actually saved lives. And then to flip that, you have to say, if they did, how many did they claim in the process, whether it was actually claiming lives from suicides, overdoses, canceled surgeries, or how many lives did they just make miserable by economic restrictions, unemployment, people who still have never regained what they lost in terms of businesses, time, revenue, missed opportunities with family members, lost travel opportunities to see dying relatives, people being denied funerals. So. I mean, what we need is a wholesale commission that does every single thing in this, that looks at all of it. And I don't think that's ever going to happen because no government around the world, with very few exceptions, would come out of that. I know, unscathed. and it's interesting because that's what I what I want right now. And people asked, what is your position? I was obviously very opposed to the severe lockdowns. There was other restrictions I genuinely had no idea about because a lot of these things, I just felt like I didn't know enough. And this is the time now for us all to get the information, right? For example, I feel like the Ontario PCs are just kind of getting away with it. You know, they got a big fat majority government. They're moving on on from the topic and said we did our best fine you know what that that could be true you know doug ford isn't an awful person he probably did what he thought was his best what i want to know is how good his best was and what we know now because you know covid you know mutates and who knows what happens when the next pandemic hits so like if we don't if we don't figure out now what the ups and downs and positives and negatives of the government response was then or now then like we're we're never going to do it and i i do understand what you're saying though of course is all the political impetus is probably to avoid establishing any kind of commission that's going to highlight government malfeasance. Yeah, and even when the liberals dropped the restrictions or announced they were dropping the restrictions at the end of September, my my point on this was even setting aside the fact that they've even said in the announcement they could come back 
setting aside that for a moment, my issue is that there was no acknowledgement of wrongdoing. They weren't dropping them because they said, you know what, we, we messed up and we're sorry. They dropped them because they said, well, the science now says we can do it. So they're claiming that they didn't get it wrong, that the circumstances have now just evolved to a magic day where they can, as of you know, 11.59 p.m. with the stroke of a pen, get rid of these things. And that, to me, is quite problematic because if there's no acknowledgement it was wrong, they're not shattering this idea that this was a, a concept that they get behind that could be applied to other things. I mean, it sounds conspiratorial when you talk about it, but you have the same types of people speaking up about a so-called climate emergency as we're speaking up about a COVID emergency. And if we've decided that emergency is this trump card that you can play against civil liberties, then there's really no limitation apart from just your lack of imagination as to when you play that card. So that brings us directly to when the term emergency, capital E, was used, is they've delayed, you know, the analysis of of the Emergency Measures Act. But again, I'm worried that people's attention span might actually let him get away with doing this. It's become increasingly obvious that a lot of liberals were very uncomfortable doing it, but only voted for it because they didn't want to trigger election. And I think that's cowardice. But, you know, at least we kind of know what their real thoughts were on thing. The same thing for Jagmeet Singh of the NDP, Canada's most useless politician by far. Do you think Justin Trudeau is just going to get away with having declared the Emergency Measures Act? Or is there some chance that the the accounting for what happened and why the decision was made, especially now that we know that the police never asked for him to do so, is going to hurt him in the long run? And just to toot my own horn for a moment, one of the things that came up is that the government had actually been advised on the eve of declaring the Emergencies Act that there was a breakthrough in progress between police and convoy organizers, which you know, because you read my book, was something that I had reported on originally, and then everyone else sort of came around to that, and and it was supported by cabinet documents. So I, I think the... The longer term view of this that I take is that the government wanted the outcome. They wanted the bank account freezing. They wanted the control and they saw their window was closing and they jumped on it. I think that this commission could reveal that the government was a little trigger happy on the Emergencies Act, but I also don't think that will matter. And I guess that's the problem is that you you can't put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, this, this is the prime minister who has been found to have violated conflict of interest and ethics rules more times than I can count. And whenever it happens, it's a, oh, whoopsie. I mean, this is a guy who was the subject of a report. His government was the subject of a report that said Canada is committing genocide against indigenous people. And even he accepting that says, oh, well, that sucks. Okay. So this idea that a report can make some, even if it's a really damning accusation, doesn't really translate to any accountability. That kind of moves us into where we're at politically at large now, because I've kind of felt, I've talked about this with you before, but also just sort of watching the way Canadian politics unfolds, that Trudeau's basically going to go down like most liberal prime ministers does, when, you know, the, the next tiny small scandal, whatever it is, finally drags him underwater and people get sick of him. At the end of the day, he's not going to pay for one thing specifically, like, you know, Christian paid for sponsorship or anything like that. Now we just spent, you know, what feels like half my adult life having a conservative party leadership race to, you know, swap out the porridge cabbage patch kid for the the nasally skippy who talks incessantly about inflation and climbed on board the convoy once it seemed clear that enough people supported it, etc. I'm pretty cynical about Pierre in general. I've written that before. Like my reaction to his win was sort of like whatever. 
you know, could be, could have been a lot worse. Definitely could have been better. What's your take on his win? What are the positives and negatives? He appears to be something of a libertarian, although his votes on the conversion therapy ban and stuff like that really belie it. So I would argue that he's pretty picky and choosy about which freedoms he decides to support. Where are you at on, on Pierre? I mean, it's not a surprising outcome by any stretch. I I think that's an important point here is that this was not for however long the race went on, anything that anyone was surprised by. I think it was always going to be a question of at the, at the beginning, first ballot or second ballot or third ballot. And then it just became how big is the the margin going to be on the first ballot. Now, the challenge with that is that when you win with such a decisive mandate, there is no incentive to be magnanimous and there's no incentive to reach across the aisle. He he didn't. I mean, contrary to Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, he didn't have to owe his victory to social conservatives. And he's the first leader in quite a while that I think has a, a coalition of his own that didn't require assembling blocks through ranked balloting. Now, I think that one aspect of this, and, and you and I have spoken about this, and I've also spoken about it on on Scott Hayward's and Alyssa Golob's podcast, is that a lot of social conservatives are not single-issue voters. And a lot of them who may have aligned with Leslie Lewis on things were feeling like, you know what, the greatest threat to my freedom right now might not be abortion being legal in Canada. It might be churches being shut down and pastors being jailed. So the freedom candidate, which was what Pierre Polyev tried to carve out for himself, was very appealing, even if Polyev, by his own admission, has no social conservative streak on abortion, on assisted dying, and, and so on. So I think the question is, what does he do now? Because we know that the past two elections have been masterclasses on how to blow an otherwise winnable election through a combination of leadership, of circumstances. Like you and I have have known each other for a long time, Jonathan. If you and I had talked to each other in 2015 and concocted like the dream scenario for a conservative defeating Justin Trudeau, we wouldn't have come up with blackface. (laughs) We wouldn't have come up with multiple blackface photos of Justin Trudeau. We're like, okay, no, no, no. We have to stay within reality. Conservatives had that and and still lost. One of them being like a monkey face with a banana down his pants. Yeah, yeah. So Polyev has to resist doing what has failed for the conservatives, which is trying to go after votes that are never going to go to the conservatives in a way that alienates people that want to and already are going to and and building the base rather than shifting the base. And I think that is the the fundamental failure of Canadian conservative politics. Yeah, so we've talked about abortion quite a bit on both your show and my own on what I think the way forward on the issue is, which is focusing on unwanted abortions, which the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada says is like over 60% of them in Canada. I don't think that Pierre is going to touch any of that. So leaving that aside for a moment, the reason, interestingly, for anybody interested that I don't think Pierre will touch any of that is that I know for a fact he used to attend pro-life conferences as a student. So my former colleague, Stephanie Gray, who is one of the co-founders of the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, was at the National Campus Life Network, which is a pro-life campus club for for student leaders. She was there with him and remembers him being there. And when somebody was pro-life and then decided Decides to abandon those principles. Like nobody is worse for SOCONs than somebody who you know used to identify as pro-life and no longer does. If if they never were pro-life, but were like, hey, I agree with you here. They're I find those people like like a Maxim Bernier, for example, are much more willing to establish common ground because mm-hmm. because they're like, okay, well, I I disagree with you on this eighty percent, but here's twenty percent we can meet on. So I don't think Pierre is going to touch that at all. One of the things I was I was wondering what your take on would be is why. 
there hasn't been a peep from him on on the assisted dying issue at all. When for the first time now in since 2015 with legalization, we watched the entire Canadian media, I think with the with the notable exception of Andrew Coyne, basically just get right behind the legislation, basically parrot all of the talking points for, for di- I'm dying with dignity. And now you've got the Toronto Star calling, uh, what do they call it, Hunger Games style social Darwinism. Because of the number of people that are opting to have the gov- the state-sanctioned, funded, facilitated assisted suicide because they're poor, because they're not able to find disability housing, because all of these benefits that are apparently available to us aren't available to them. Like the Guardian, very left-wing paper, right, ran a headline, as, is Canada killing its poor people, you know? And these headlines are, are, are happening all over the place. This is something that Aaron O'Toole, to his credit, did care about. And Canada is, is set to expand the eligibility for assisted suicide into the realm of of mental illness, which obviously is just a disaster. Like, what are we going to do when people who are suicidal can apply for assisted suicide based on the fact that they feel suicidal? I know many, many people, some of them very close to me in my life, who would not be alive today if that had been available 5, 10, 15 years ago. I know... I'm one of them. I wasn't going to ask you that question directly, but you've given speeches on that. And, and and you're one of my many friends who has struggled publicly with mental illness. I'm wondering why Pierre wouldn't touch something when we're at the point where, again, the Toronto Star, the Toronto Star is publishing these headlines. It seems like such an easy way to be a champion on mental health, to appeal to all aspects of his base, not to mention the fact that, like, the corpses are piling up. Canadian war vets, you know, are applying for assisted suicide because they can't get treatment for PTSD. I guess I just don't understand why why, why you wouldn't take this issue. It seems to have everything you want in a political issue, plus being the right thing to do. Just setting aside morality for a moment, which in, in a political context I think is important, it, it I think is the most winnable social issue in politics because it's the least controversial. I mean, I know people that are absolutely all for medical assistance and dying, but would draw the line, a very firm, clear, hard line at people with mental illness. And the government has crossed that line. So at the very least, that should be one that galvanizes him because no one can really criticize that without looking so utterly callous. And I mean, there was a story a couple of weeks ago about how Saskatchewan's 511 information line had in its main menu, press five if you want information about assisted death. So this, I mean, it's it's going through a very similar trajectory that abortion did, if you may remember, where safe, legal, and rare used to be the the catchphrase by people that supported it because they were trying to say, well, I, I'm against it, but. And with assisted suicide, it was, well, you know, tragic, last resort, when absolutely necessary to now on demand. And I think it's an example of, of how the left is very, very quick at, at pushing, pushing, pushing that Overton window. And I think conservatives are just so cautious that even when something so clear comes up, they're worried about it being some political landmine instead of, as you mentioned, doing the right thing. Especially, I guess, just on this issue is that because we all know people who have struggled deeply with mental illness, everybody, all of us do. We all know somebody who's experienced suicidal ideation. Most of us know somebody who's attempted it. And so... At this stage, like it is such a universal issue, I think. It is an issue that appeals to so many people. It's an issue where a politician can be eloquent and emotional without being cliche and sounding stupid and gross. You know what I mean? I get emotional talking about the issue just because of the number of people, you know, that I'm close to who have suffered from such crippling mental illness and the idea that the that the doctor would in their despair offer them this when they want to die and they're looking for a way out. And you know, you're 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 spending all of your time telling them, Don't go, I need you here. 
And so I just wonder if there's if there's not a way that that we can push an issue that I do genuinely think would be so unifying, because I find it very hard to ascribe anything but malice to the liberals for their refusal to listen to disability advocates, to those who represent impoverished communities, to those in the mental health community, and to only listen to suicide activists. Like Chris Biddle responded to the Toronto Star. He is just such a reptilian figure. You know, he comes out and says, you know, oh, I guess we're going to have to look at this. We didn't know this would happen. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, you jackass. They told you this would happen in the in the parliamentary hearings. Like this stuff was laid out for you. And now the corpses arrive and you're like, oh, what? I wish somebody had told me. Yeah. And when the mental health exemption was dropped and it became clear that they were going to allow this for people with mental illness, there was a two year dead man switch, basically, where at the end of the two years, it was automatically going to happen whether or not they agreed on anything. Well, in that two years, we had an election that takes time out of the legislative calendar and the liberals just showed no political will to actually do what people wanted, which is have this discussion, go down into it and say, maybe we need to change the regulations. And it it is an example of, of ideology being driven at a very, very dangerous level. And I think one of the reasons for it is that there's an inherent deference. I mean, it's what they do with abortion. When, when anyone says, well, you know, maybe we restrict it at the third trimester at least. They say, no, 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 no. Just leave it legal. It's not going to happen anyway. No one's going to do it. Let your doctor decide. And they're doing the same thing with assisted death. I know. Sometimes I think that Pierre is so hyper fixated on inflation that the only way he's going to do it if one of his comms directors pitches the idea of like, look, again, an international headline talking about an impoverished Canadian opting for assisted suicide because they can't get it. Can we run out a press release saying just inflation killed this veteran or something like that like maybe that would do it you know what i mean but (laughs) how do you think pierre's gonna be overall like you know what i am i'm kind of like i don't care really in terms of i don't hate him like i hated patrick brown i'm not bullish on him like i was on on leslin and i'm not cautiously optimistic like i was of sheer where are you on 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 the the pierre question I think that stylistically he'll be a lot more capable and a lot more competent than, than Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer, because they both Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer suffered from an inability to communicate what they thought. I mean, in Andrew Scheer's case, he was selling something that you could tell he didn't really believe in. And in O'Toole's position, he was just so inept at selling it. You had no idea what he believed in. Whereas with, with Polyev, I do see an authenticity in him and I do see a, a commitment to talking about the things that he wants to talk about and an ability to articulate that message even on complex issues so I, I think that that gives him an advantage when it comes to the big risk that conservatives get which is folding at the first sign of pushback when they unveil their platform and all of a sudden this thing that's printed and laminated is like oh no no i didn't really mean that like you know O'Toole couldn't even defend conscience rights which was literally written in the platform and sort of rolled on that so i think paulie will do better i also wonder if Just looking at it as far as the social issues are concerned, if the best thing for the conservatives is a leader that has taken that off the table from the leader's perspective and from the party perspective to just let people in the caucus do what they're going to do and and focus on the members of parliament, focus on the candidates when you're talking about those sorts of issues, because – we know it is going to be the the main issue of any campaign, whether or not there's a pro-life leader. 
And I almost wonder if a leader that can set the narrative and define the narrative on something else, which I think Polyev can do, is the best strategy. What do you make of the photo that was making its way around Canadian Twitter showing Leslie Lewis and and possibly the furthest back corner she could have been placed in with, with Pierre heading back to Parliament? Like on one hand, as you said, he doesn't owe her followers anything the way that Aaron O'Toole did. Do you think that this is sort of a personal snub or do you just think he doesn't really care and she's still a pretty junior MP despite her, her I think, pretty impressive showing in the previous two races? My approach to this is that I want to wait until the shadow cabinet roles are are given because when O'Toole came in and Leslin Lewis had been in the leadership race and then got elected to a parliament in 2021, she was, I mean, she was so far on the backbench that she was basically in Gatineau and O'Toole was very deliberately keeping her frozen out. Whereas you look in 2017, when Andrew Scheer won, pretty much all of his competitors in the race had shadow cabinet roles. Now, a lot of people thought Maxime Bernier should have given a more prominent one. But even so, he made a point of including the vast majority of the people that had been running against him. O'Toole didn't do that. Scheer didn't really do it to the extent that some people wanted, but he tried. And I think it was, generally speaking, well done. So I want Pierre Polyev to extend the same olive branch. Whatever you believe, these are all people that form a part of the conservative coalition. Certainly, Leslie Lewis represents a large number of members and supporters in the party. Give her a shadow cabinet role. And, and if that doesn't happen, then I think that will give the answer. I, I But I reserve judgment based solely on seating arrangement. I myself time. don't quite know what it is. And like and, and Leslie obviously had a lot of policies I really liked. I thought... I went to a, I covered a bunch of her rallies. I thought some of her rallies were really good. Other other rallies she seemed very off. She had one good debate performance. She had a couple of very like pretty pretty awful debate performances as well. Right? She there was definitely stumbles. Like there was definitely times when you could tell she was the junior MP and you could tell she was in a national spotlight and she wasn't used to it. A lot of their a lot of the emails I got from her campaign were like 1700 1800 words long i write for magazines who won't let me go past a thousand when i'm covering a complicated issue right so there was definitely missteps in the campaign and i think pierre was a far more effective messenger but i guess looking forward then give give the listeners a a six month forecast we've got now pierre in place i hope we don't have another leadership race soon you have the ndp propping up the liberals how do you think this is going to go over the next half year or so To be honest, I think the next leadership race will likely be an NDP one. I I think people in the NDP are finally starting to sour on Jagmeet Singh's leadership, who I was trying to think of what it is that unnerves me so much about his performance. And he reminds me of the knight in the Monty Python quest for the Holy Grail that's had all his limbs sawed, chopped off by the sword and still thinks he's winning. And is like just demanding a piece of the action because it's like, here's a guy who just keeps losing and losing badly and still thinks he's, he's giving his people a win. And I think that that's going to be a big thing right now, because I think a conservative victory, certainly a conservative majority needs a strong NDP. And this is something that I think is very dangerous for the conservatives in that they have a path to victory that relies on something else happening, unless dramatically they're able to just pull a rabbit out of their hat and court labor like the PCs in Ontario are trying to do. So I think that that's going to be the real thing that I'm watching here is what happens with the NDP, because that doesn't just affect when there's going to be an election, but it also affects how the conservatives need to address the country. They got rid of Tom Mulcair after, you know, the second most impressive NDP showing in in the party's history and they just like instantly shanked him so and then Jagmeet you know he gets to stick around regardless of his losses like what do you think it actually takes for them to finally make him walk the plank 
there have to be some NDPers that are tired of being principled losers. And some of them, I think, are entirely happy being principled losers. But I think there have to be some that want a piece of power again, even if it is as official opposition. I, unfortunately, I think that party has done its best to purge itself of any of the, the so-called moderate pragmatists of the party. And the liberals have been able to benefit by that, by becoming the most NDP, uh, the NDP resembling liberal party that the country has ever seen. So I think that for the conservatives, they, they need to be in that mindset of realizing that the same old bag of tricks isn't going to work. You need a, a political environment that is in your direction. And I think that means uh, having a, a stronger NDP to siphon votes away from the liberals. But you also have to have to have a message that resonates with people and that is still conservative. And I, I think that there is a, an implicit belief that a lot of conservative campaign strategists have that the country is not a conservative country. And I think that's the impulse behind their idea to just abandon. Finally, to wrap it up, looking at. at the liberals, Trudeau has indicated that he is going to run in the next election. A lot of people are thinking that his brand is now toxic. It's, it's always hard to discern precisely when this happens, but there does actually seem to be sort of a consensus now that everybody's just tired of him. Like I thought the Bohemian Rhapsody thing at the, you know, the Queen's funeral weekend was like, whatever, it's, it's just exactly what you'd expect from him. Sure. I thought it was sort of unprofessional and disrespectful. No, I didn't really care at all. And I felt absolutely no sense of outrage about it whatsoever. But there, it just, a lot of people sort of just heaved a big sigh and were like, there he goes again and kind of carried on. And there seems to be this consensus that he can't carry the brand again. Do you think that he's going to he's going to give it a shot again anyways, or do you think it's going to go off to somebody like, I don't know, Christia Freeland seems to be everybody's status quo choice? I don't think Justin Trudeau has the self-awareness to know when it's time to quit. I, I think he's the kind that wants to go out kicking and screaming. So I think the more likely scenario there is that his party would start to turn on him, is that his party starts to realize, listen, this guy can't deliver us another victory. And I think, to be honest, that would be the incentive for Trudeau to call a snap election at some point, is if he feels that the knives are coming out from within his own party and he needs to like just go to Canadians and hopefully get a mandate from them so that he can turn to his party How and much say, no, no, would it I'm be here. They elected the me. Come out for him, though, just as a spectator sport. You know, I really, really, really hoped that there'd be a little bit more pushback over the Emergencies Act, you know, and, but even the liberals that were unnerved by it just went along with it because it was a minority government and they didn't want to be seen as voting in non-confidence, which was never what the vote was supposed to be. So I would absolutely <laughs> All right, to close love it off, to see Where that. can our listeners find your podcast and, of course, the Freedom Convoy? The Andrew Lawton Show, they can listen to over at True North, TNC.news, and the Freedom Convoy you can get on Amazon. You can get it Indigo now, finally, and also hopefully your local neighborhood bookstore. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Canadian author, columnist, and broadcaster Andrew Lawden of the True North Center. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you'd like to join us again next week, if you'd like to be notified when new episodes come out, please go to lifesitenews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe to our show there. Again, thank you so much for your time this week, and we do hope you'll join us again.